The new Riders of the Purple Sage debut album is not my favorite in their catalog, but the road to its creation is, is a very interesting one. We're going to kick off the new Riders with the formation of the band itself. In essence, NRPS begins with three young musicians who meet and play together in early 1960s folky Palo Alto, California, split apart and go on their own journeys throughout the 60s, and then meet back up to create the psychedelic Bakersfield-style country stew that is the self-titled NERP's debut album in 1971. I'm Brennan. Welcome to Boogie Chits. Okay, we're going to start with guitarist David Nelson, born June 12, 1943 in Seattle, Washington, but his family relocated to Northern California while he was growing up. And after high school, David Nelson finds the Palo Alto beatnik scene, he starts playing folk and bluegrass guitar on stage with other musicians like Joan Baez and the Kingston Trio. So Palo Alto had some good small venues at this time, like St. Michael's Alley, which was a funky little coffee shop, Top of the Tangent, which is a small folk club located above a pizza parlor, and the Chateau, basically a makeshift hippie commune inside an old-ass three-story Victorian house. David would back whoever was around it on guitar. This is like the early, so this is, I want to say this is about 62, um... David's still alive, touring to this day. He's an 80-year-old grizzled stoner guy, wears a headband over his grandma hair, still lugging around his Telecaster. The guy rules. So the Palo Alto folk scene would shift north during the daytime to the city of Menlo Park. There was a quirky bookstore located there called Kepler's Books. That place is still going today, but back in the early 1960s, it served as a meeting place for the hyper-creative young writers, poets, and musicians living in the area. So the active participants of this folk scene would work and or meet up and hang in Menlo Park during the day and then play small shows in Palo Alto at night. Menlo Park is like straight up Silicon Valley. It's where Google and Roblox were founded. It's also the... The, the location of the Meta headquarters with that Facebook Zuckerberg weirdo with the Geisha sunscreen face. Also in Menlo Park, there was a residential spot where musicians could hang, crash, and sometimes play shows. It wasn't a venue, but rather a, a party house of sorts. An Oregonian, Oregonian or Oregonian scholar who had just completed a Stanford fellowship in creative writing named Ken Kesey had rented a small cottage on Perry Lane located along the Stanford golf course. Ken had friends as roommates, some of which would end up as part of his Merry Pranksters crew. It was a constant party at the Perry Lane house. Artists were always in and out, and it became the after-party like after house. Folk shows at one of the Palo Alto joints, then back home to Menlo Park to party at Perry Lane. So like, if Motley Crue were an early 60s bluegrass group, it would be Ken Kesey nudging them out the, the Perry Lane door at 4 a.m. as opposed to Hugh Hefner doing so at like the Playboy Mansion. Ken Kesey, he worked at the Menlo Park Veterans Hospital during the day and then write and or host Perry Lane activities at night or, or whenever he wasn't working. 
He would use his experience as an orderly at the hospital as material for the book he was writing, which would turn out to end up being One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. In addition to uh, sweeping and changing bed sheets, Kesey also eagerly took part in a CIA-funded study program studying the effects of hallucinogenic dr- drugs. Years later, this program would be revealed as uh, MK Ultra. So Kesey got paid to take LSD and mescaline and have his behavior monitored while under the influence. Ken would also bring home drugs from, from work and get his Perry Lane house lit up. This included Neil Cassidy. He's this like the speed freak hammer juggler who was the in- inspiration for the Dean Moriarty character in the novel On the Road. Mountain Girl was there, Intrepid Traveler, Ken Babs, Gretchen Fetchin, Malfunction, Mike Hagen, all the lunatics who would climb aboard the Merry Prankster bus in 1964 and, and drive across the U.S. tripping on LSD. Ken Kesey introducing LSD to that little Menlo Park art community. It was nicknamed Little Bohemia at that point. That's like the true spark for what would go down in the Bay Area for the rest of the 60s. You got the... It's laying groundwork for the electric Kool-Aid acid tests, Summer of Love. All began with that burly moose Ken Kesey swiping bottles of liquid acid from the nurse's office at the Veterans Hospital and, you know, sharing it with his friends back home. David Nelson, he's a part of all this, from gigs at the Chateau to parties at Perry Lane. He's found a home in in this little, cool uh, Palo Alto folk community. During this time, he collaborates with a ton of people, but he makes a real connection with two individuals in particular that would set the stage for the new riders of the Purple Sage down the road. One of those is a guitar player who had taken up a real interest in learning banjo named Jerome Jerry Garcia. Jerry was born August 1st, 1942 in San Francisco, but was mostly Menlo Park raised. Jerry's dad, he died tragically in 1947. He drowned while fly fishing. And less than a year earlier than that, uh, Garcia accidentally had two-thirds of his middle finger on his right hand lopped off accidentally by his brother Tiff in a woodcutting accident. Rough couple years there for young Jerry. Jerry's mom, Bobby, took over the bar that her husband owned. Um, got remarried in 1953 to some guy named Wally and, you know, the family, the two boys, Jerry and his brother Tiff. Mom, Bobby, and stepdad Wally settled in uh, Menlo Park. In 1960, Jerry stole his mother's car, and in lieu of going to prison, he joined the Army. Ruth Bobby, uh, Jerry's mom, tough lady, ran that, ran that like, uh, you know, seaside bar, Siemens Bar full-time and didn't take any shit from anyone, including her kids. Jerry steals her car, boom. Police are called. You're off to prison or the Army. But anyway, Jerry, was he was out of the Army quickly where he received uh, multiple infractions for being AWOL and just standard disinterest. Jerry Garcia does not, it seems like the last place for that guy. He was lucky to get out with a general discharge and not a dishonorable one. Jerry uh, Garcia had always had an active interest in music. His dad was a musician, and he took piano lessons very early and was already a good guitar player by the time he you know, was out of the Army. He comes home from the Army to find this awesome string-picking folk and bluegrass thing happening in Palo Alto and you know, in the outskirts of San Francisco. 
starts taking up banjo and meets David Nelson, who is an awesome bluegrass-style guitar player, a perfect accompaniment for Jerry's banjo interest. They put together, uh, David and Jerry, they put together an acoustic band called the Wildwood Boys. Jerry on banjo, David on guitar, and a friend of Jerry's on bass named Robert Hunter, who didn't really know how to play the instrument, but was willing to do so. So that, you know, that's good enough. Jerry and Robert had met two years earlier at Kepler's Books. This is, I think, the only time that Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter would actually be in a band together. But my God, through all of his collaborations to come in life, I don't think any of them hold as much vitality to the Jerry Cannon than his songwriting partnership with Robert Hunter. Robert Hunter, you know, he would end. He wrote the lyrics to the bulk of Jerry's original songs, you know, in the Grateful Dead, Dark Star, Black Peter, Ripple, and my personal favorite set of lyrics ever written by a human being, Terrapin Station. Robert wrote all of them. For over 30 years, he would just mail Jerry pages of words, and then Jerry would use this scrap paper database to pull lyrics from for songs he was working on. Basically, Robert Hunter was the Bernie Taupin to Jerry Garcia's Elton John. The Wildwood Boys would play the tangent and the normal track of venues in the Palo Alto scene for six months and then move on. This was a massively collaborative scene, and groups would form and splinter off left and right. Despite the Wildwood Boys being a passing informal thing, they did record their music, and in 2017, a compilation was released of scattered live songs from the Wildwood Boys' brief run in the Palo Alto scene. One of the songs in their rotation, and it appears on that comp, is a country song called The Race Is On, which would become popularized by George Jones a year after the Wildwood Boys played it. The song would also end up in the Grateful Dead setlist uh, catalog, mainly in 1973 and, and, and 1980 when they did that run of acoustic electric shows at Radio City Music Hall and the Warfield in San Francisco. Around this time... David and Jerry, they become friends with another guy who's been hanging around the Palo Alto and Perry Lane house named John Dawson, who goes by the nickname Marmaduke. John is a few years younger than David and Jerry, and he's, he's a Menlo Park native. His father was a filmmaker, and John took guitar lessons at the Peninsula School when he was a kid. For high school, he attended Millbrook in New York State. This is interesting. Pretty prestigious boarding school that includes RFK Jr., Robert Wood Johnson, and Rachel Yucatel, who banged Tiger Woods. That's in their alumni list. While attending high school at Millbrook, John Dawson would regularly regularly visit the Millbrook Estate, which was a 64-room mansion occupied by Timothy Leary and friends. Timothy Leary had recently been fired by Harvard University over his psychedelic drug experiments and research program. Harvard faculty and administration, they'd grown weary over the validity and safety of those those experiments. Leary would also no-show lectures constantly, so it's like adios, adios, Tim. Leary and his crew were able to stay at the majestic Millbrook estate because it was owned by three heirs of the Mellon Fortune. Peggy, Billy, and Tommy Hitchcock. 
The three siblings had become acolytes of Leary after taking part in some of his uh, LSD sessions. John Marmaduke Dawson also took acid at Millbrook and brought back stories of his time there to Perry Lane to share with Ken Kesey and the rest of that Bay Area gang. It's important to note that you know Marmaduke was a direct connection between like the first two LSD gurus in American counterculture history. You got Ken Kesey on the West Coast, and then you got Timothy Leary in the East. I'm more I'm more of a Ken Kesey guy. Timothy Leary was a was a rambling creep. Musically, Marmaduke gets involved with the Wildwood Boys by turning David Nelson onto Bakersfield style country music, which was you know, an electrified honky-tonk sound made popular by Buck Owens and Merrill Haggard, guys like that a few years earlier. David was in- instantly drawn to the metallic, finger-picking Telecaster sound of you know Buck Owens. I think Nelson still sticks with the Fender Telecaster as his main guitar to this day. The Bakersfield sound also attracts the interest of Jerry Garcia, who was fascinated with the electrified weeping sound of the pedal steel guitar that is used in Buck Owens' backing band, The Buckaroos. Before 1963 is over, Jerry Garcia would cultivate musical connections with two other Palo Alto scenesters. One night while on stage, Jerry invites a pudgy little guy named Ronald McKernan onto the stage to sing and play harmonica. McKernan went by the nickname Pigpen. Jerry knew Pigpen from the coffeehouse circuit, and they also worked together at Dana Morgan Music Store in Palo Alto. Jerry Garcia made extra income at that time by giving guitar lessons there. Jerry, blown away by Pigpen's blues delivery, he sounds like a a soulful old black guy, and he can also play piano too. So Ronald Pigpen McKernan, born 1945, a few years younger than Jerry, Grew up exploring his father's extensive blues record collection. His dad was a local blues DJ who went by the name Cool Breeze. Pigpen actually first met Garcia when he was only 14 years old hanging around the coffee shops. Jerry was the only guy around at the time who could competently play blues on the guitar with any conviction. So Pigpen, ever the blues scholar, took to him immediately. After sharing the stage in 1963, the two decided to start a new band together. Before that prospective uh, band is formed, another local aspiring guitarist stumbles out of nowhere into Jerry's life. On New Year's Eve 1963, Jerry is running scales on his banjo inside the Dana Morgan Music Store, where you know the place where he's been giving lessons. Two 16-year-old kids who had been roaming around Palo Alto that night looking for a live music venue that would actually let them in, even though, you know, since they were underage. Those two kids, they hear banjo coming from the Dana Morgan store and decide to go in. They stumble upon a friendly Jerry and hit it off. Garcia was oblivious to the fact it was New Year's Eve, and he thought the two were there for, for lessons. They were like students. One of those two boys did indeed play guitar and went by the name Bob Weir. The other kid eventually left to go look for a party, but Bob stayed with Jerry at the store all night playing the assorted stringed instruments laying around the store. By that morning, a new friendship was born and Jerry added another student to his little guitar lessons business. Robert Hall Weir, born October 16th, 1947 in San Francisco, 
His birth parents were college students and, and couldn't make parenting happen. So Bob was raised by adoptive parents in wealthy Atherton, California, which is only like four miles from Palo Alto. Bob starts playing guitar at 13 and he struggles in school because of severely undiagnosed dyslexia. He's still in high school when he enters the Dana Morgan store and into the life of the 21-year-old Jerry Garcia. Jerry, Pigben, and Bob Weir, they kick off 1964 by forming Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions. Pigben wanted to do a straight-up like electrified blues band, but Mother McCree's becomes a jug band, as the name would suggest. What exactly is a jug band? Besides the one that isn't um, Fat Albert's crew a jug band? Anyway, jug band music was popular in the 1920s and 30s, but got a revival in the 1960s amongst the regional folk music scenes scattered across the country, you know, including New York City and here in the Bay Area. Jug band music started in Kentucky, but the most popular stuff I think is from Memphis. You got Big Bill Brunzi, Memphis Mini, Daddy Stovepipe, fucking great names. Most of these artists, they started in the African-American vaudeville and medicine show circuits. So essentially a jug band was made up of a mix of traditional instruments like the guitar and mandolin, banjo, mixed with a bunch of homemade instruments, including like a jug, washboard bass, spoons, a kazoo. The delivery is like a rag, it comes out like a ragtime mix of blues and jazz. So the core of Mother McCree's was made up of Garcia on guitar, banjo, kazoo, and he did vocals, Pigpen on vocals and harmonica, and young Bobby Weir on guitar, washtub bass, whatever else, you know. The rest of the band was a rotating set of characters that did not include David Nelson, but Marmaduke is there fairly regularly. He's in the lineup. Mother's McCree, Mother McCree's would mostly do blues covers led by Pigpen, and quite a few of those songs would end up in the Grateful Dead set list rotation for years to come. Beat It On Down the Line, which is, uh, is that a Jesse Fuller song, and then Ain't It Crazy, The Rub, the blues song by Lightning Hopkins. In July 1964, a pair of Stanford University students, they recorded a Mother McCree's show at the Tangent. That's a folk music coffee house run by two Stanford doctors. In 1999, those tapes, they would be unearthed and the show was uh, released officially. So you can listen. You can listen to the Wildwood Boys. You can listen to Mother McCree's. There's actually, um, it's nice that they've actually have recordings of those two uh, outfits. Mother McCree's as a jug band would be done before the year was over. The emergence of the Beatles and... Stuff like Jerry's first acid trip happened that year. So Jerry, Bob, Bob, and Pigpen, they're ready to make the move to rock and roll. It's just inevitable. They pick up drummer Bill Kreutzman and bassist Phil Lesh and change the band name to The Warlocks. The new band plays their first gig at Magoo's Pizza Parlor in Menlo Park on May 5th, 1965 and would pound the area for the rest of the year before changing their name to The Grateful Dead. Their first live show as the Dead was in San Jose on December 4th at one of Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters uh, electric Kool-Aid acid tests. I mean, wow, what a first gig. Ken Kesey's acid test parties are forever woven into you know the countercultural fabric. They were 
mostly held before LSD was made illegal in California in 1966. In basic terms, it was they were just big free-for-all parties, sometimes with live music, sometimes not. But the attendees were always lit to the tits on acid, provided by local LSD chemists Owsley Bear Stanley and Tim Scully. They would just fill up gigantic tubs, and you know you could just dip a cup in there, take a swig, and you know, laser, laser time. The Grateful Dead would informally become the house band for these crazy affairs, and the acid tests would serve as an incubator for the vibe of the Grateful Dead show, vibe, vibe of Grateful Dead shows for years to come. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm sick as a dog doing this, uh, so I apologize for my voice and if I cough. So, after playing together in various forms for like five years, David Nelson, Jerry Garcia, and Marmaduke, they've split apart from each other as the Palo Alto scene starts to dry up. The three guys are all moving on to different locations. We'll start with Jerry and the Dead. So the Grateful Dead, they moved to San Francisco in 1966 and take up communal residence in a small purple Victorian house located at 710 Ashbury Street. The entire band lived and rehearsed in that house, except for Phil Lesh, who I think lives with a, a girlfriend close by. So inside this house on 710 Ashbury, the band practiced and jammed all day, and then at night would go out and play San Francisco joints like, you know, the Avalon, Carousel Ballroom. Carousel would eventually become the famous Fillmore West in 1968. The dead could live and practice in that Ashbury house without having to worry about finances because Owsley Bear Stanley had become their manager of sorts. Bear was the guy who provided most of the LSD available on the scene and at the, you know, the acid tests. He would manufacture hundreds of thousands of hits and, and then basically give them away for free. The Monterey Pop Festival audience was completely lit on Owsley acid. He was also... Very interested in sound equipment and kept the Grateful Dead up to par with gear. He he was like a fairy godmother for the band. Oh, this is interesting too. Owsley, he kept pill pressing equipment in the attic of the 710 Ashbury house. The members of the Grateful Dead would actually press LSD pills for Bear. There was so much powder form LSD in that house that it would be like there would be like a fog in the air so everyone in that house was tripping balls all the time even with like dust masks could you imagine I could you imagine if that that Fauci did a day in in that uh house in 1966 before making making his ruling on COVID masks Pigpen was um scared to death of LSD. He was the only one in the band who didn't get laser beamed on a daily basis. He was a severe alcoholic, though, and probably drank through the uh, LSD powder fog in the air. Pigpen, he got... This is interesting. Pigpen got himself a girlfriend who also didn't like acid and but loved the blues. The lead singer of fellow Hate Ashbury band Big Brother and the Holding Company, girl's name was Janice Joplin. They used to keep the other housemates awake with their loud loft making. Take a look at a take a look at a picture of Pigpen and then Janis Joplin, and then imagine the sights and smells of those two banging. Oof. The Grateful Dead they get signed to Warner Brothers Records and release two albums during their time living in Haight Ashbury. Self titled 
self-titled album in 1967 and then Anthem of the Sun in 68. Neither album makes much of an impact, but live, the Grateful Dead are front and center for the Summer of Love, Human Being, Ken Kesey's three-day trips festival, Monterey Pop, all those famous, um, you know, all the famous hippie events of the time. The Jefferson Airplane were like the San Francisco band that could pump out some hits, but the Grateful Dead were the house band for the live scene in the flesh, no doubt. So while the Grateful Dead are nuts deep in the psychedelic counterculture, what the hell are John Marmaduke Dawson and David Nelson up to? Well, after Mother McCree splinters into what would become the Grateful Dead, Marmaduke goes to college. He moves down to Los Angeles and attends Occidental. He continues to play his style of country music on the side and eventually transfers back closer to home to Foothill College in Los Altos. David Nelson stayed put in Palo Alto this whole time. He started the new Delhi River Band, which would gain a pretty good cult following outside of San Francisco, like Santa Clara, Santa Cruz, those counties. He would also play guitar for a bunch of bluegrass bands like High Country that uh, Jerry Garcia was very interested in. And I think that was one of the bands that really sparked his interest in pedal steel. After Janis Joplin left Big Brother and the Holding Company, David Nelson was asked to play guitar in a new updated version of the band, but didn't didn't happen. In late 1968 and early 1969, the Grateful Dead record their third studio album, Oxamuxoa, which is just a cool palindrome that doesn't mean anything. Warner Brothers had been growing weary of the Grateful Dead. They were difficult to deal with. Huge gaggles of people in the studio nitrous tanks hissing in the bathrooms. Bob Weir nearly drove an engineer to the brink asking him to record. He wanted a song. He wanted to record the sound of thick air. This is an era when producers like still wore suits and the studio was like a clean and sacred place. For the Oxamuxoa sessions, Jerry invited David Nelson and Marmaduke to add parts to the recordings. That's the first time these three have played music together in quite a while. So, like I said, Jerry had recently become obsessed with the pedal steel guitar, and David and Marmaduke's bluegrass country presence would spark the idea for the three to put together an informal new band, and New Riders of the Purple Sage is born in 1969. David Nelson and John Dawson would also contribute to the Dead's pair of 1970 albums, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. A couple chestnuts right there. Marmaduke gets partial songwriting credit on Friend of the Devil. Jerry plays some pedal steel on both of those albums as well. And In May 1970, the Grateful Dead start doing shows billed as an evening with the Grateful Dead. These four-hour-plus shows would include an acoustic Grateful Dead set, two electric dead sets, and then sandwiched in there would also be a set by Jerry's new psychedelic country, New Rider's side project. Grateful Dead band members Phil Esch and Mickey Hart would round out the rhythm section of uh, to make NRPS a, a five-piece. I, I mean, I'm convinced that New Riders of the Purple Sage was started just so Jerry Garcia could practice pedal steel guitar on stage like in front of an audience. Most of the sets were made up of covers like Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash song, and Honky Tonk Women, Rolling Stones jam. 
mixed with uh, the Marmaduke Country originals that would make up the album we are about to dive into. So those Evening With shows, they would last into 1971, and NRPS is a viable enough band to record an album, even though it's it's just a ra- uh, ragtag dead side project. Kind of hamstrung when the majority of the band are members of the Grateful Dead. So, But Mickey Hart would leave the Grateful Dead in early 1971, and Phil Lesh would cease interest in being an NRPS, so... New Riders grabbed David Torbert to play bass and former Jefferson Airplane drummer Spencer Dryden to play drums. Clive Davis signs the New Riders to Columbia Records, mostly because he wanted the Grateful Dead on the label so bad and thought giving NRPS a deal might sweeten like their interest. So in December 1970 through January of the following year, the new writers of the Purple Sage Gang are in Wally Hyder Studios in San Francisco to record their debut album. Marmaduke wrote all of the songs for this album, and he sings them all as well. This would change in the future with this band. They would adapt a more egalitarian approach to material creation, much like, much like the Grateful Dead. Despite his super laid-back unwillingness to ever be the star of the show, this album truly is Jerry Garcia fired up over being able to play the pedal steel guitar. Ten tracks, a little under 40 minutes. Marmaduke's lyrics are as American as it gets. Songs about truck drivers, train robbers, and drug smugglers. So let's get into it. Good opener to this album. Track is called I Don't Know You, and Jerry's pedal steel and Marmaduke's reedy vocals are on display right out of the gate. Metal steel guitar is most commonly associated with American country music and Hawaiian music. It's a console type of steel guitar with pedals and knee levers that change the pitch of certain strings to enable playing more varied and complex music than other steel guitar designs. Like all steel guitars, it can play unlimited glissandi, which are like sliding notes. The instrument shares a lot of characteristics with the human voice. Interesting. What you're going to do is up next. I love this song. It's some real hippy-dippy shit. Jerry does the main riff, and it has traces of St. Stephen in it, the uh, masterfully legendary Grateful Dead jam that first appears on Oxamuxoa.
I don't know where John Dawson got the nickname Marmaduke, but my first thought was it had to be something with his dick. Every time, like, one of these musicians, on this show at least, they have a nickname. It always has something to do with their with their genitals. But I don't know if this is a fact, but this has got to be where he got it from. There was a comic strip that was started in 1954 called Marmaduke about, like, some lovable great Dane that, you know, just makes the lives around everyone, you know, more lively and enriches them. There was a movie. I, it's got to be that comic strip. He, he must have been, I think he was like a really nice guy, um, uh, Marmot, John Dawson. So maybe that's where he got it from, just being like a cool guy. They reminded people of the, the fucking dog. There was a movie, a, da, a, a movie adaptation of uh, Marmaduke, in 2010, based off the comic strip, Marmaduke was voiced by Owen Wilson. We slow it down for song number three. Portland Woman is the name. Basically a truck driver's jam in true uh, Bakersfield style. A trucker, it's basically about a trucker driving across country to get home to the woman he loves. Very, uh, very Americana. you've ever heard the Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, Teach Your Children, that's Jerry Garcia playing the pedal steel on the recording. He basically plays that same part on this song. It's like very similar. When I think of a Portland woman, I think of like a flannel lager, like big shouldered she beast with Bush, large Marge from uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. What are you up to, Marmaduke? As you tour the country. The fourth song is called Henry and is without question my favorite new writers of the Purple Sage song period. David Nelson lets loose on guitar here. This is an absolute banger. Playlistable all the way through. New Riders would open shows with Henry and they would just like rip jam for like five minutes right at the beginning of the show and before even hitting the first lyrics of that song. Absolute smoker. About drug smuggling, the gentleman smugglers started taking shape around this time, around the time of this album's recording. The gentleman smugglers were a crew of marijuana, uh, you know, smugglers, dealers, whatever, started in South Carolina and Florida and eventually grew to a global empire. They moved close to 200 tons of marijuana before the decade was over. They were led by some dude named Barry Flash Foy. 
and were actually like really nice guys. They had two major rules in their policy, no guns and no cocaine. It's good, good baseline for, you know, to stay out of trouble, I guess. I can see why they ended in the 80s, though, that no cocaine rule. Forget it. The uh, the first side of the record closes out with Dirty Business. This is the longest song on the album at eight minutes. Widespread Panic have been covering this song for years. Dirty Business. They absolutely crush it. John Bell has a good voice to sing about coal country. Coal mining really started to pick up in the early 1970s. 610 million tons of coal was extracted in 1970 to meet the demands of the ever-growing electrical market in the United States. Dirty Business is more about the struggle of the average coal miner than like you know the money generated. Five years after this album was released, the documentary Harlan County, USA, which covered the Brookside Coal Mine and Prep Plant Strike of 1973, won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. Soundtrack is awesome on that uh, documentary. Lots of fiddle and banjo songs that the Wildwood Boys would have been down with. Wildwood Boys would have been a good um, Jersey Shore-like spinoff show, knockoff show. Instead of working at like the you know, going to the gym and tanning and stuff, they could like steal. Could be a bunch. It could be a bunch of guys in like wife beaters stealing copper wire from housing developments to try to fence for oxy or something. I don't know. Glendale Train kicks off side B. Another slice of outlaw America Americana history from Marmaduke. This song is about the Jesse James gangs. 1879 train robbery at the Glendale, uh, Glendale, Missouri station. I like Glendale Train because uh, Garcia breaks the banjo out for that one. Like uh, Jerry Garcia, Jesse James was missing a portion of one of his middle fingers as well. Interesting coincidence there. Okay, back to the uh, hippie stuff next with Garden of Eden. I just assume this one is about the dangers of like environmental recklessness. To- total uh, tree hugger type jam. Sometimes we forget that we're just people And we're falling in here Cause all of us forget quite how we feel And we live in the garden 
David Torbert's uh, bass is loud in the mix on Garden of Eden. David replaced Phil Lesh as the NRPS bassist right before the recording of this album, probably at Phil's recommendation. Torbert played bass on the opening track of the Dead's 1970 American Beauty album, the song Box of Rain. It's Phil Lesh song about the passing of his father and is to me one of the very few Grateful Dead songs that sound best in their studio format. My favorite version of that song is the studio one. Um, Phil uh, did the lyrics and I think played uh, acoustic guitar in the American Beauty version. So they added David Torbert on bass and he ended up in NRPS. All I Ever Wanted is song eight and... It, it kind of blows. My least favorite song on the record. Here's some more Jerry Pedal Steel. Total snoozer, but uh, whatevs. Last the Lonely Eagles next pretty much sucks balls, too. It's like a bad version of Wild Horses. Commander Cody plays that nice piano part on Last Lonely Eagle. Commander Cody was the stage name of George Frayne, who along with his band, the Lost Planet Airmen, opened a a ton of shows for the Grateful Dead in the 1970s. Kind of a cult band, boogie-woogie style country, and they had a pedal steel guitar player named Bobby Black. I like their um, Country Casanova album. That's the only... Uh, Commander Cody album I've ever owned I bought it for like three bucks used CD years ago we close the album with another truck driving anthem Louisiana Lady this was the first single released off of the NRPS debut Really nice harmony vocals on this on this jam. Good song, good album. I think Reese Witherspoon is from Louisiana. There's Louisiana Lady. Best flavor of ice cream I had in 2023 was called Reese's With a Spoon. Clever name. 
had like Reese's peanut butter cups, Reese's pieces, all kinds of other shit, all peanut butter based. It was amazing. And I got, <laughs> I got it in a, a giant like waffle cone too. So a 43 year old man walking around town, lapping a giant ice cream cone. Ridiculous. So New Riders of the Purple Sage was released August 1971 on Columbia Records and reached 39 on the Billboard charts. Got good reviews, too. Not bad for a band that started out as a fun little side project with three-fifths of its members being in the Grateful Dead. In, 19, in uh, November 1971, three months after the album was released, Jerry Garcia was done with the pedal steel guitar and left NRPS. The Grateful Dead was becoming like an absolute juggernaut. You know, in my opinion, the following year, 1972, is where they truly established like that Grateful Dead unique identity. There was, they were doing two sets, song-oriented first set, and then an open-ended jam-heavy second set. Pigpen would only be alive one more year, and the, you know, the the old blues stuff would, would be going away, and, you know... Bob and Jerry are cranking out material left and right, and they are the main front men by this point, you know. Pigpen was the original star of the show when the Grateful Dead uh, formed. That that fact's gotten lost over time. Jerry Garcia just wanted to be the backing guitarist for, like, for Pigpen, who was like a blues, you know, he could just, he, he worked the audience really well, something that the Grateful Dead never, you know, did with their mouths, you know. They only did it with their, with their instruments. So despite losing... Jerry Garcia, NRPS, they would carry on. It was actually a blessing. They no longer had to adhere to the Dead's nonstop touring schedule to play shows since there was no more members of that band in in the New Riders. They would get a new pedal steel player. They'd be able to play wherever they wanted. You know, they weren't tied to the Grateful Dead and they start cranking out more records, including what I consider to be their absolute best. I love it, masterpiece. The Adventures of Panama Red. We're going to get to that um, record record somewhere down the line, somewhere down the road on Booger Tits. But uh, we'll stop here with New Riders. Um, happy New Year's, everybody. New album, new episode next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.